The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi David Vigler now presents his lecture, Change the Way You See Things, and the things you see will change. You know, life is tough. This world is a dangerous place. Nobody ever made it out of here alive. We find ourselves in a very interesting week in the Jewish experience. Last Shabbos was the saddest Shabbos of the year. It's called Shabbat Chazon. Shabbos Chazon, the Shabbos of the vision. It's a vision of destruction the destruction of our temple. It was the Shabbos before Tisha B'Av. This Shabbos is the Shabbos of rebirth, the Shabbos of renaissance, the Shabbos of comfort, called Shabbat Nachamu. Both of the, Nachamu meaning comfort, both of these Shabboses are named after the beginning of their Haftarahs, the beginning of the pro prophetic readings that we read after the Torah reading, from a Shabbos of destruction in a mere seven days, we transform into a Shabbos of consolation, comfort, and healing. How on earth are we supposed to do this without being completely exhausted? We were literally on the floor this past Sunday, fasting, praying, lamentations, and now it's all joy, celebration, and happiness. When we really think about the, the, the story of Tisha B'Av, I showed my kids a video. We actually have 10 kids together, thank God. My wife's making a presentation at 4 o'clock on uh, large families. And I, sh I showed my kids on Tisha B'Av a video representation of what actually happened on Tisha B'Av. When the Romans entered our temple, just 2,000 years ago almost, it was utterly devastating. This was the most incredible abandonment of our people. I want you to just put this into perspective for a moment. No other nation in history that was conquered by the Romans survived to tell the tale. Think about it. They all vanished into the sands of time, yet only the Jews the small, struggling, fledgling of our nation of our ancestors, somehow managed not only to survive, but indeed to thrive to the point that 2,000 years later, we're crying over the destruction of our temple. The Romans are nowhere to be found other than the history books and the ruins of the Colosseum. But we, we're just looking at building permits in every street and city in the United States of America for our shuls, our schools, and our community centers. How have we survived? What is the secret to our resilience? On a more personal level, our generation rebounded so quickly from the Holocaust. It was within memories, history. Just 75 years ago, the survivors are still alive. How did we manage to come out of the doom, destruction, and devastation of the Holocaust sane. How did we come out thriving when Vanity Fair ran a uh, story on the 100 most influential Americans? Can you guess how many of them were Jewish? Anybody? Out of 100 most influential Americans, how many were Jewish about five, six years ago? 51%. For a people that's, that's representing 3% of the population, we've not just survived, we've thrived. How? On an even more personal level. Many of, many of us have faced personal crises. Illness, death, bankruptcies, divorces, this list goes on, there's no need to elaborate. From where do we get the strength to be able to overcome, to rebuild, to go from chazon, the vision of destruction, to nachamu, 
the Shabbos of comfort. It was just two days ago, on the 11th day of Av, that we observed the yurt site of one of the most famous Hasidim in the Chabad dynasty. He was a Hasid of the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, as well as his son and successor, the Mittel Rebbe, Rabbi Dovber. The name of this Hasid was Rabbi Hillel Paricher. He was such a great disciple of the Rebbe's that he was known by his fellow Hasidim until this day as half a Rebbe. For a Hasid to be considered half a Rebbe, I don't know anybody else who's got that appellation. He was quite something. He wrote discourses of his own. One particular discourse that he wrote, which typically would be written by Rebbe's, was a discourse about which the Rebbe declared, our Rebbe declared, that this discourse is the famous discourse about the three weeks of rebuke, which we've just concluded, and the seven weeks of comfort, which we're now beginning. Within this discourse, Rabbi Hillel Paricher lays down a paradigm shift on human struggle and suffering. He transforms our paradigm, our perception of the bad things that happen to us in the most exquisite, stunning, refreshing, and personal perception. That not only calms our, our anxiety, calms our anxieties, but even more so, empowers us with the tools to be able to fulfill our own destiny. Indeed, to be able to change the way that we see things so that the things that we see will change. In the discourse, Rabbi Parcher frames the story of Jewish history, of Jewish suffering, of tragedy, on the sequence of the Jewish holidays in the most stunning sequence. He begins by explaining that the relationship between God and the Jewish people is best described as that of a teacher and, its, and his student. Indeed, in other places of Hasidus, it's been explained that this is the most precise analogy for us to be able to understand our relationship with God, a teacher and a student. What happens when a teacher is talking to a student? Life is good, the teacher is talking, the student's listening, the student is drinking in with thirst, the knowledge, the wisdom. Things are fantastic. But then, every once in a while, the teacher will be inspired with a kernel of wisdom, an idea so profound that the teacher will literally stop talking, will shut down, and even turn away from the student. When the teacher turns away from the student, when the teacher stops talking, everybody understands that the teacher's thinking. There's a brilliant idea percolating and the teacher is just preparing that idea to share it with the student. Only a simple and superficial student will think that what I see is what I get and if teacher is not looking at me, it means that the teacher has abandoned me. When the teacher is explaining to the student this is when life is good. This is when Hashem is taking care of us. God is providing for our needs. He's taking care of our security. The, the cash is flowing. Everybody's healthy. People are living well. We're attending graduation ceremonies, weddings, bar mitzvahs, and brises. Life is good. But when God turns his back on us, when the cash stops flowing, when we're spending way too much time in the hospital, when we're getting those calls from the doctor to see us now, it seems like God has abandoned us. But the way that Rabbi Hillel Paracho explains it is that God never abandons his people. God is almighty. Hashem is always in control without any ifs, ands, or buts, no exceptions whatsoever. And if God is not giving us revealed good, it means that he's thinking. He's preparing something greater. 
This is the sequence of the Jewish holidays, and this is how he explains it. We start off with Passover, the first Jewish holiday. We begin with the dramatic scene of Moses confronting God, and he says, How could you have been so cruel to this people? This is Moses' accusation speaking truth to power, literally. And God's answer to Moses through the suffering of Egypt is just wait and see what's in store for you. What happens? We then experience the stunning revelation of the 10 crushing plagues that literally brought the world superpower, Egypt, to her knees, allowing the Jews to break free from Egypt in, this, in the Passover story. And just seven weeks later, to receive the Torah on Mount Sinai, God's gift to mankind. The great revelation of the Torah was the product of God's turning his back on us, like the teacher turning away from the student during the Passover scene. The story doesn't end over there. A mere 40 days after Shavuos, after the Torah is given on Mount Sinai, we descend once again into the abyss as Moses smashes the tablets, as we enter the three weeks on the 17th of Tammuz all the way through to Tisha B'Av. This is the time of the siege on Jerusalem. This is the time when that temple is ravaged, ransacked, looted, and destroyed. It's burnt to the ground. And it seems on Tisha B'Av, what we experienced this past weekend, that God has totally abandoned us. There seems to be no route to recovery. There's no way our nation can survive. But then, hold on tight. The teacher is still thinking. Because we begin immediately the seven weeks of comfort, of consolation, of rehabilitation as, Mo as Moses negotiates a settlement agreement with God until eventually Moses strikes a deal and God declares those timeless words, Vayomer Hashem and God said, I have forgiven as you have requested these words uttered on the 10th day of Tishrei, which is forever that since then, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Yom Kippur. On that day, God gives us the second set of tablets, more, much more than we're given the first time round on Mount Sinai. Now we receive not just the Ten Commandments, but the written Torah as well as the oral Torah, the Mishnah, the Talmud, Halacha, Agada. We receive the Kabbalah, the teachings of Hasidus. So much more is given in the second teaching, in the second giving, than was given the first time round. This celebration, this revelation is then celebrated just four days later with the festival of Sukkot. What is a Sukkah? A Sukkah is when God envelops us inside of his house, inside of his Sukkah. Like an embrace where the person that you're hugging hugs your back. God embraces our entire being and we erupt in unbridled joy in the celebration of this awesome achievement with the joyous dancing of Simchas Torah. We start on Passover with the descent and the suffering to reach the climax of Shavuos. Once again, we descend into the suffering of Tisha B'Av and the 17th of Tammuz, only to rise again with the revelation of Yom Kippur, the second tablets, and the joy and celebration of Sukkot and Simchas Torah. Reb Hillel teaches us that God never abandons us. There's only two kinds of blessings that we can get from God. There's ordinary blessings and extraordinary blessings. When times are good, God is giving us ordinary blessings. When times are bad, hold on tight, because now is the time for extraordinary blessings to come our way. This is the reason what we've effectively done here is redefined darkness. Instead of looking at darkness as the absence of light, what we've done is that we've redefined darkness as the intensity of light, a light so intense that we can't even see it. We've got to wait for that light to become something that we can relate to. Indeed, on a scientific level, a black hole is not the absence of light. It is the utter intensity of light to the point that even light is sucked in. With this understanding, we can understand 
and appreciate an enigmatic piece of Talmud. In Tractate Nida 54 A and B, the Talmud tells us that inside of the temple, which was destroyed on Tisha B'Av, in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant of Indiana Jones fame, right? On top of the Ark of the Covenant were the two cherubs made of gold, two angel-like images. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets, the first tablets that were shattered by Moses and the second tablets, the, the, the Ten Commandments. The Talmud tells us that even though the top of the Ark of the Covenant was made of solid gold, the two cherubs on top were facing each other only in times of when God was happy with the Jewish people. But when God was upset with the Jewish people, the cherubs were back to back. It's therefore stunning for us to learn in the Talmud that when the conquerors entered the holy temple and they entered into the holy of holies, how did they find the cherubs above the Ark of the Covenant? In an embrace. Indicative of God's love. How can it be that during this time of epic abandonment, of catastrophe, how can it be that God is happy with the Jewish people? It's only with the re redefinition of the paradigm of suffering. It's only with this magnificent explanation of Hasidus Chabad that God never turns his back on his people. It's either ordinary blessings or extraordinary blessings that we can appreciate and understand. That when, when we experience the tough times, we shouldn't let the hardship break ourselves. Hold on for dear life because there's a much, much greater light that's soon to follow. You know, when the Talmud tells us that when the, the sages walked past the ruins of our temple, three of the sages broke down in bitter tears, and only one of them, Rabbi Akiva, began to laugh. The sages, of course, asked him, Rabbi Akiva, how dare you laugh at the ruins of our destruction, at the ruins of our holy temple? How can you do this? To which Rabbi Akiva, at the end of Tractate Makos, in the Talmud, quotes, a prophecy of, of a prophecy. He says, Siyain Sadatecharash, Zion will be plowed over like a field. She will be plowed over like a field, and then he says a second prophecy of rebuilding. Said Rabbi Akiva, there's a there's a beautiful explanation. The Rabbi explains the meaning, the choice of Rabbi Akiva's choice of prophecy. Rabbi Akiva could have chosen any other prophecy. He wasn't just saying that the bad things that we're experiencing now will lead to greater good afterwards. The choice of metaphor is stunning. Rabbi Akiva chooses the metaphor of a plow. What happens when you plow a field? You're destroying the field, right? You're literally uprooting the earth. A simple person will look at the plow and say the field is being destroyed. But a wise person understands that the deeper the plow, the better the subsequent planting. Plowing is a necessary step within the growth that will follow. This isn't destruction that precedes growth. This is indeed part of the growth. The bad things that happen to us aren't bad. They're just a preparation for the extraordinary blessings that will follow. Indeed, in Hebrew, the word for crisis is mashber, M-A-S-H-B-E-R, mashber, crisis. Mashber is also the word for a birthing stool. Why? Birthing, not that I know, it's painful. <laughs> My mother says that if men would have to have children, there'd be no people on this earth. <laughs> Birth is painful, but of course, we embrace it with love knowing that this is the path to new life. The stunning love that follows is necessary to be experienced through this birth canal. It's the opposing winds that allow the plane to soar, to take off, if not for the competition flying against the airplane, the plane would never take off. Indeed, the bad things that happen to us are God's 
hidden blessings. And that's why when we look back at Jewish history, we notice that all of the greatest gifts that we Jews have experienced in our history happened after devastation. The Talmud, the oral Torah, was written down for us soon after the destruction of our temples 2,000 years ago. Kabbalah, the teachings of Kabbalah were disseminated, do you know when? Nearly 500 years ago, soon after the devastation of the Spanish expulsion and inquisition. And the teachings of Chabad Hasidus, the rise of the Baal Shem Tov and the Rebbes of Chabad were given to us after the Jewish communities of Russia and Eastern Europe were ravaged by the Cossacks in 1648 and 1649. What Hasidus has done for us is redefined the perception of evil, redefined the perception of tragedy. For us to be able to view it not, as, not on, only on a superficial level, where it just seems bad, but to be able to understand that it, like a plow, holds the keys to the subsequent growth blessing, an extraordinary blessing that will follow. But it's the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, that takes this idea and develops it into the most empowering and deeply personal concept. In a discourse called Viodaita Moskva, which the Rebbe Rashab delivered in 1896, he gives us the tools to literally transform the results of the bad things that happen to us. Whether we will be experiencing a curse or a cure to our tragedy literally depends on our perception. This discourse, Viodaita Moskva, I actually took the effort to, the, the, I, took, I set myself a goal of presenting this discourse, which changed my life, to our community in Chabad Palm Beach Gardens. We wrote it up in a manner that would be understood by a layperson, even if you don't read Hebrew. And it's my gift to you in a few minutes after we finish this lecture to be able to take it home with you. This book, Viodaita Moskova, If God is Good, Why Can Life Be So Bad? In this discourse, the Rebbe Rashab explains that having now understood a deeper understanding of tragedy, Understanding that God never actually abandons us. He's always embracing us. He challenges us or gives us the tools to be able to actually transform the results of our struggle. You see, there's what we see with our eyes and then there's what we sense with our hearts. What we see with our eyes on a superficial level is suffering, it's tragedy, bad things. But what we see, what we sense with our hearts is God's loving embrace preparing us for an extraordinary blessing to follow, like the teacher who turns his back on the student momentarily, just in preparation for the greater revelation that follows. Whether we choose to connect with the sight of our eyes or the sensing of our hearts is what will predict the outcome, chaos, or the cure. You see, every time we face a tragedy, every time we face a crisis, we're forced to choose between faith or fear. Car accident, somebody's ill, a divorce, a bankruptcy, Somebody gets fired. How do you react? You're at a T-bone junction. You've got to go right or left. You're either going to respond with faith or you're going to respond with fear. If you respond with fear, you are relating to the vision of your eyes, to the, super, to the superficial perception of reality. If you relate with faith, you're connecting to the sensing of your heart, to the deeper reality of what's going on. Fear draws forth 
God's abandonment, God's apparent abandonment, faith draws upon God's deeper embrace. In the, in the discourse of Yodaita Muscova, we're called upon to see the light with our hearts when all our eyes can see is darkness. This idea is a fundamental Hasidic concept that our thoughts can change our reality. How we choose to perceive a situation in our hearts, with faith or with fear, will transform the result that actually happens to us. This concept of the thoughts that control our reality is an idea that has been shared with us through the greatest minds of Jewish history. The Baal Shem Tov taught us the mirror doctrine. The Baal Shem Tov taught us, quoting on King David in the book of Psalms, Hashem Tzilcha, God is your shadow. What does it mean, God is your shadow? The Baal Shem Tov explains that just like your shadow follows your every move, so too God follows your emotion. When you experience fear, you draw God's abandonment. When you, draw, when you experience faith, you're drawing God's embrace. Elsewhere, the Baal Shem Tov explains the verse in Psalms 32. He who trusts in God will draw kindness upon him. And the Baal Shem Tov explains the corollary. If you don't trust in God, without faith you have fear. You draw not kindness, you draw gvura, strictness upon you. The successor of the Baal Shem Tov, the Magid of Mezrich, explains the, the, the Mishnah in Ethics of the Fathers. Know that which is above you. The Magid of Mezrich explains in a novel interpretation. He says, know that that which is above is a result of you. Your emotions dictate your blessing. How you feel inside is what is drawn upon you. The prophet Yechezkel says the same exact idea in his first chapter, verse 26. As a person sees himself, so too do they see him from above. Your feelings below is what is drawn upon you from above. Lest this idea sound a little too spiritual, it is Isaac Newton's third law. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. In a letter that the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Rebbe, wrote to his brother-in-law, the brother-in-law of, of, of the Tzemach Tzedek, it was actually his Mechutan, the, the kids married each other. His Mechutan wrote to him that he was frustrated with his, own, with his own health issues. And he was depressed about it. So the, the Tzemach Tzedek wrote him a letter expressing reminding him of how important his state of mind is. He said, you can't be depressed because of your health. He said, your health is the way it is because of your state of mind. Change the way you think, and you will change your world. On a December evening, on a Saturday night in 1812, in the town of Piena, in, White, in Belarusia, the Alter Rebbe was running away from Napoleon with his family. The Alter Rebbe was very ill, and as he lay in the room, his grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek, just mentioned him, the future third Rebbe, was praying, was davening Mayriv, the evening service. And as he prayed the evening service, he did so with a melancholy tune. He was sad, his grandfather was ill. His grandfather was passing away. He was sad. The Alter Rebbe said to him, as soon as he finished, he said, your inner state of mind, I quote, your inner state of mind affects your reality. Do not sing songs with tunes of depression. The world is like a mirror. When you reflect an image of sadness and dread, that is what comes back to you. The divine energy mirrors your own reality, your own inner reality. It was just a few minutes later that the Alter Rebbe closed his eyes and he passed away from this world. The Alter Rebbe was almost insinuating. We have to draw our own conclusion. 
that whether he lived or died, whether he would recover or regress, depended upon the state of mind of the Tzamach Tzedek. Indeed, the Zohar, the foundational text of the Kabbalah, tells us explicitly in the most magnificent quote in Parshas Tetzaveh, 184b, the following words. The lower world is always ready to receive. The upper world only gives according to the state of the lower world. If the lower world is in a state of bright countenance, in the same manner it is shown upon from above. But if the lower world is in a state of sadness, it is correspondingly given sadness from above. This is what I call the mirror doctrine. When we understand that crisis, tragedy, suffering has to be understood on two dual realities. On a superficial level, it seems like God has abandoned us. But on an essential level, we come to the awareness that God never abandons us, but like a teacher is only temporarily thinking as he's presenting to a student. We have the choice of faith or fear, the choice of connecting and drawing either God's abandonment on a superficial level or God's embrace on a deeper, more essential level. Whether you say you can or you say you can't, you're right. Whether you'll experience crisis or calm, whether you'll experience catastrophe or comfort, depends on your perception your choice of how you react emotionally to what it is that you're experiencing. Once again, just in case, this idea sounds like purely spiritual and, and completely removed from reality. I was amazed to come across this same idea in modern scientific writings. When it comes to electrons, there's a great debate amongst the uh, scientists about whether the electron which defines matter, is a wave or a particle. Now, I'm no scientist, but I understand that they behave differently. The conclusion of scientists is that the electron is actually both. It behaves both like a wave as well as a particle. And they call it an endless field of possibilities. An example is given like a basketball bouncing on a court, but why does it behave sometimes in a certain way? Because it actually changes whilst under observation. The behavior of the electron changes whilst under human observation, which is why sometimes it behaves like a wave and sometimes it behaves like a particle. It was Max Planck, who was the father of quantum theory, he died in 1947, who said, on this idea that consciousness is fundamental. Matter is a derivative of consciousness. Wow. From a scientific perspective, not just a spiritual one, what happens to us is a direct result from our perception of that idea. Things actually behave differently depending on how we are viewing them. In the discourse, Viodaita Moskova, the Rebbe Rashab gives some beautiful practical examples of how the greatest personalities of Jewish history actually changed their story, changed their result as a result of how they chose to perceive their crisis. He gives an example of Abraham. Do you remember when Abraham was the father of monotheism? He had to stand up to King Nimrod when, when he was forcing everybody to bow down to him. If anybody refused, he was to be thrown in the furnace. Only Abraham refused. Now, how would you react if you were to be thrown into a furnace, right? Abraham refused to perceive the furnace, the fire, the public fire, as a problem. He recognized that it was only a problem on a superficial level because God is always in control and nothing bad is going to happen to him. He chose faith over fear. And as a result of his choice of emotion, he experienced the miracle of surviving the flames 
which led to Abraham becoming the father of monotheism in such a public forum. A second example, not of mortality, but of finance, is Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa in the Talmud. He met his daughter one Friday night as she was sad. He asked her, my daughter, why are you so sad? She said, because I lit the Friday night Shabbos candles. But instead of using oil, I used vinegar. I used vinegar. The candles are going to burn out. Instead of getting upset with his daughter, who was going to bring about a dark Shabbos for the family, he said, no. The same God that told oil to burn can make vinegar burn too. Without fear, anxiety, or anger, he reacted with equanimity, with faith and fortitude. And indeed, the Talmud tells us the fire burned all the way through to the end of Shabbos. A final example is of Elijah the prophet who's facing a test of faith in the famous duel that happened with the prophets of the Baal, the Jewish prophets of the idolatry of the Baal on Mount Carmel in Haifa. Both of them were to bring an offering one to Hashem and one to the idol. And whoever was going to send the fire from heaven was going to be judged as the true God. In this famous biblical encounter, Elijah reacts with strength, with faith, and with fortitude, and not a shred of fear. And indeed, the Rebbe Rashab tells us, it was his choice of emotion, it was the choice with which he chose to see the reality that changed the way that the reality unfolded before him, the fire of course, descended from heaven. And as we look at the rest of the stories of Jewish history, we realize that they are filled with men and women of daring and courageous faith in the face of fear. Nochum Ishgamzu from the Talmud, Rabbi Akiva, and countless others changed their own realities by changing their perception. And in case this sounds like a story of biblical times removed from our current reality, I just want to share with you one story of a woman in Brooklyn, New York. Her name is Rhoda Friedland. She was in a private audience with the Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the Friedrich Rebbe, on the last night of his private, private audience. It was a Thursday night in 1950, and he passed away the next Day on Shabbos. In that private audience, she was newly married. She asked the Rebbe for a blessing for children because she was having medical issues. The previous Rebbe asked if she's seeing a doctor. He, she answered in the affirmative. To which he said, they will have children. They'll have healthy children. And that was it. 24 hours later, 36 hours later, the previous Rebbe passed away. And his son-in-law, the, the, our Rebbe, soon after became Rebbe. This woman, Rhoda, came to the Rebbe a little while later, and she told the Rebbe, you know, the previous Rebbe gave me a blessing for, for a child, but the doctors are telling me that I can never have a child. They want me to have a hysterectomy. The Rebbe said to her, you know, if my father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, gave you a blessing for children, you're going to have children. You should go to see my wife's doctor. So she did. Rhoda goes to see the Rebetzin Chaim Mushka's doctor, who tells her exactly the same thing as the first doctor. You need a hysterectomy. She goes to the Rebbe to tell her what this doctor said. And while she's there, while Rhoda is talking to the Rebbe, this doctor calls the Rebbe's office and says to the Rebbe, Rabbi, you have to let the woman have the surgery to remove her, her uterus, otherwise you're going to kill her, quote, unquote. The Rebbe says, okay, hangs up the phone. He looks at the woman at Rhoda and he says to her, let's find another doctor. She goes to a big doctor, she says, on Park Avenue. And this doctor tells her, I don't want to hear any stories about rabbis. I am booking you now, two weeks from now, for a hysterectomy. I'm not even asking you. She then goes back to the Rebbe and she says, Rebbe, thank you so much for trying. I've made up my mind. It's not going to happen. And the Rebbe says to her, can you do me a favor? Of course, Rabbi, I'll do you a favor. Go see one more doctor. <laughs> she goes to this fourth doctor, and the fourth doctor tells her, 
The fourth doctor tells her, I need you to go home right now, get into bed, and don't get out of bed for any reason because I think you might be pregnant. She does exactly that, and indeed, her son, Binyamin Mendel, was born as a direct result of this story. This story, which is well documented in first person on video, is an amazing modern day story. Was this a story of the Rebbe being right and the three doctors being wrong? I don't think so. I think the three doctors were very right. But what the Rebbe did for this woman, Mrs. Friedland, is that he helped her go from a superficial perception of her problem to a deeper and more essential understanding of her problem, to redefine her problem by strengthening her faith with the blessing of the previous Rebbe. You will have children. You will have healthy children. The choice lies within your own heart. And if you can allow yourself the ability to go deeper, to remove yourself from what it seems with the vision of your eyes, to descend into the vision, the sensing of your heart, to see the light with your heart when all your eyes are able to see is darkness. If you can choose faith over fear, then you will be able to experience the blessing instead of the curse. Friends, nature is not set in stone. It's set in our hearts. The world is a mirror. How you see it is exactly the energy that it reflects back at you. Change your thoughts and you change your world. Change the way you see things and the things that you see will change. I beg of you not to allow the no you can't that you've heard since your earliest youth, to define you. The miracles of Torah that we read week in and week out are powerful affirmations of our ancestors that yes, we can, and so can you. Don't tell your God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big your God is. Scientists tell us that we have somewhere between 6,000 to 50,000 thoughts every day. Wow, that's a lot of thoughts. Imagine each thought had a color. Imagine when you're feeling happy, it's a white, it's a yellow, it's a, an orange. Imagine when you're feeling sad or fearful, it's a brown or a gray or a black. If you had to take all the colors of your thoughts of one day and put them all together, what color would come out? What would be the color of your thoughts? Are you a white, a yellow, a hot pink, or maybe a black, a brown, a dark green? We hold our own destiny in our own hands. And indeed, the Torah tells us as one of the 613 commandments, that when Jewish soldiers go out to battle, they are not allowed to be afraid. We'll read this in the Torah in just three weeks' time, four weeks' time. When you go out to war against your enemy, you shall not be afraid of them. The Torah commands us not to be afraid because we have nothing to fear but fear itself. The commentaries of Torah tell us that this is not only a commandment to the soldiers of battle. This is a commandment to each and every single Jew. In the battles that we face in our daily encounter, we are not allowed to ever be afraid. When the doctor calls, when you receive that letter from, your, from, the, from the lawyer, when you see the political candidate rise or fall, when you hear the news coming out of the New York Times or Islamic Jihad or some war going on somewhere, what goes on in your heart is what projects the result around you. Fear is our enemy. 
when Rabbi, when Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, the former chief rabbi of Israel and brilliant orator, survivor of Buchenwald, when he came to visit the Rebbe soon after the, sixth, the, the Yom Kippur War, the Yom Kippur War was an epic catastrophe for the Jewish people. Of course, we won the war, but we lost almost 3,000 soldiers. Which for Israel, a country as the size of Israel, that is, that is just an unthinkable proportion of our soldiers, of our civilians. As they sat in a private audience, Rabbi Lau told the Rebbe about what was going on in Israel. And the Rebbe asked him, so what are the people saying in Israel? And Rabbi Lau responded, they're saying, they're saying, what will be? And the Rebbe said, a Jew never says, what will be? A Jew only says, what are we going to do about it? We are never reactive to the tragedies, the trials, and the tribulations we face. We must be proactive to them. We cannot ever allow ourselves to react to them. What will be? We are not spectators. We are players on this field. What will we do? That is the Jewish approach. A Jew doesn't ask lama. Lama means why. We don't ask lama. You know, in Hebrew, there's no vowels in the Torah, right? We ask lemma, which means for what reason, for what purpose. What's the next step? What's the action that we need to take? Because this is a T-bone junction. The tragedy, the crisis, the struggle, the problem that I face is a choice between faith or fear. And I have to be able to hold my head up high and to be able to stand strong, to be able to make the right choice, to be able to choose faith and run away from fear. I'd like to conclude with an amazing story that came out of Elizabeth, New Jersey in the 90s. There was a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Mordechai Pinchas Taitz. Not a Chabad rabbi, he was actually raised in the Lithuanian yeshivas. Some of our members were under his uh, congregation here in Palm Beach, you know. And Rabbi Mordechai Pinchas, Rabbi Taitz, was known as a great scholar, a God-fearing Jew, made it his business to travel to Russia before the fall of the Iron Curtain to bring Judaica to the Jews that were deprived of their, of their heritage, to fill in mezuzahs, Torah books. Of course, it wasn't exactly legal, but he would travel. He had connections, and he was able to go behind the scenes to be able to help them, to meet with them, to encourage them. Of course, no work could have been done behind the scenes of Soviet Russia without the involvement of Chabad. Chabad had a huge network that was going underground all over Russia. And as they heard, as the Chabadnikim heard that Rabbi Taitz was traveling to Russia, he receives a knock on the door one day in Elizabeth, New Jersey. It's a Chabadnik. He's bringing a package from the Rebbe, a package of tefillin and mezuzahs for him to take with him to give to the Jews of Russia. And then this emissary pulls out a little black book, a small black book, and he says, this is the Rebbe's personal Tanya. A Tanya. The Tanya is the founding text of Chabad. This is the Rebbe's personal Tanya. It has the Rebbe's name inside. The Rebbe wants you to carry this book with you wherever you go in Russia. Now Rabbi Tide says, okay, it's one thing for me to take to fill in mezuzahs, to give it to the Jews of Russia. Okay, I'll divest of them as I travel. But to carry a book with me wherever I go, that's downright dangerous. Maybe I'll be caught with a Torah book. I don't want to do this. He really thought about it until he comes to the conclusion, you know what, if the Rebbe asked me to do it, I'll do it. And so he goes, he travels to Russia. He's trying to mind his own business. He's walking home from the synagogue where services were still allowed in one place, evening services. He's walking towards his hotel. He suddenly gets pounced upon by two men as they roughly shove him into a car. They drive him to a location. And he's sure that he's being kidnapped. 
when eventually they remove his blindfold and they bring him into wherever they're bringing him, he finds two Jewish men, one younger, one older, who introduce themselves to him as two Chabadnikim in Russia. And they apologize for the rough introduction. They said, this is the only way that we could have met you without anybody following us. And they tell him, look, the reason that we needed to meet you is because we heard that you came from New Jersey. And we have, both of us have desperately urgent questions that we have to ask the Rebbe. So we want you to go back to Russia, to go back to the Rebbe with our questions, and the Rebbe will find a way already to give us the answer. And so it was that uh, they proceeded to go ahead. The first one was an older guy. He says, you know, I live here in Moscow, and I, I have come to, it has come to my attention that the KGB is after me. So I need to know if I should run away from Moscow, go to the countryside, or stay here. Running away from Moscow will mean that I alert suspicion, red flags alerts upon me. Or is it better for me to play it cool and just do nothing? That's my question. The second one, he said, I'm much younger. I have a job, nice apartment. I'm an engineer. I would love to go with my family to make Aliyah, to go to Israel. But the moment that you ask for a visa to make Aliyah, you become a refusenik. You lose your apartment. You lose your job. Your kids get thrown out of school and everything else. You could live like this for decades. Should I or should I not apply for a visa for Aliyah? Okay, these are the questions, no problem. He says, let me memorize your names. I need to memorize your names and questions because I wouldn't write down your names. It's too dangerous in case I get caught and somebody searches me with your information. I will carry these questions for you back to the Rebbe. And now they're chit-chatting, you know, life in New Jersey, life in Moscow. When suddenly Rabbi Tait says, one second, you want a question to the Rebbe, right? You won't believe it. I am carrying with me the Rebbe's personal Tanya. <gasps> really? You, you have with you here the Tanya that the Rebbe studies from? Unbelievable. Can we see it? Can we hold it? He says, yeah, you won't believe it. He pulls it out and he gives it to them. They look through it and with sacred inspection, they touch and they caress every page and they see the Rebbe's name and they're opening every page and they're smelling it and they're kissing it until the older one suddenly says, whoa, 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 one second. I see there's a page folded here. And he starts to read exactly where the page is folded. And he notices, this is towards the end of Tanya in Kuntras Akhran, page 162a. He notices that it says over there these words, he is very pressed for time and he must make an immediate escape. And the older chassid said, this is it. This is my answer. The Rebbe has given me an answer. I know what to do now. I've asked my question. He sent me an answer with a fold in the page. Now, Rabbi Taitz was, remember, he's not a Chabad chassid. He's not into folded pages for life-changing decisions. <laughs> he's sort of, okay, fine. If that's how you take your answer, then fine with me. Then the younger chassid said, give it to me. Let me look too. And he begins to look closely. And he opens now to chapter 29, the very end of the chapter of the first part of Tanya. It's page 37b, towards the end of the page, three quarters of the way down. It's a, the, he sees another page is folded, a second fold. He says, there's another fold. What does he find? It says over there, talking about the spies, that they were supposed to enter the promised land to proceed on their journey. Wow. Both of them are ecstatic. And they beg Rabbi Tites, please, allow us to keep this Tanya. Allow us to keep this Tanya from the Rebbe. And Rabbi Tites says, listen, the Rebbe gave me to fill in a mezuzah to distribute. He asked me to hold this Tanya with me wherever I go. I am holding on to it. I am not giving it away. And so it was. He puts it back in his pocket and he goes back. He goes back to Brooklyn, New York. And he's in a private audience at the Rebbe, and he, and he tells the Rebbe this story. He tells him all the stories that, that he was doing there in Russia, in a, in a meeting with the Rebbe. He, he actually forgot to tell the Rebbe this story. At one point, the Rebbe asked him if he met any chassidim, and he says, yeah, 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 they, they actually accosted me, <laughs> and they, they kidnapped me, and he tells him the story of, how, of what happened. And he says, yeah, it was a very interesting meeting with me. And they tell him, and then he proceeds to tell the Rebbe the questions. And then the Rebbe says to him, to Rabbi Taitz, Aber gesen? But the folds, did they see? 
Did they see the faults? You know, we live our lives in a way that we hope for perfection. We hope to live our lives in a way where nobody gets sick, where everybody's doing well in business, everybody's happy, there's no mental health issues, everybody's getting married, everybody's having kids, everybody's growing up. Everything is picture perfect. We don't want any folds in our pages. But what we learn from the Hasidic approach to tragedy, what we learn from, from this mimer, from Vyodaita Moskva, is that it could very well be that your message, that my message, is not in the perfect page, it's in the fold of the page. It's in the imperfections where we find our perfection. It's when we're faced with struggle and we're able to overcome it with faith, not fear. When we're able to deepen our perception from the superficial understanding of God's abandonment to God's, to deeper understanding of God's embrace. When we're able to recognize God's unconditional and always present love to us when we're able to choose that deeper perception through the crinkles in the pages, it's then that we're able to fulfill our destiny, leading us to the purpose for which we were sent to this earth to transform the darkness into the light, the dysfunction into function, being able to make this world a veritable dira betachtonim, a home for God Almighty, a place where God is always comfortable, not only in the good times, but even in the bad times as well. May we be empowered to recognize and realize the power that we harbor within our hearts. The world is a mirror to what's going on inside of us. And if we can only open our hearts and minds to that power that we harbor within us, we can truly change what happens to us when we change the way we see things, then the things that we see will change. Thank you. Yes, absolutely bitachon. Bitachon is trust in God. Bitachon is beyond emuna, is beyond faith. Absolutely that. This is the, the, what I've explained here today is the mechanism behind bitachon. When we study the, the gates of trust, when we study the, the mitzvah to trust in God, we learn that when you think good, it will be good, but we don't know why. And then we are faced with increasingly greater challenges and struggles to the point that we say, I can't trust anymore. But with this approach, with this depth of wisdom shared with us in the discourse, we're hopefully empowered to be able to face any opposition. God should protect us from being tested. We should never be tested. But even if we are, it's the meditation of this discourse that changes our perception. I've actually divided this into 30 days of meditations. I've broken up, you'll notice in the introduction in the table of contents, you'll notice that there's 30 different days of meditations. So instead of reading it in one shot, you've got 30 days of meditation. Each day takes about 20 minutes or less to read. And at the end of each day, there's actually a call to action, a meditation, for you to be able to experience. So hopefully over 30 days, you can take this game-changing, life-changing idea and implement it into your own personal life. It is my gift to you, and I would love to hear your, thought, your, your feedback and your thoughtful reflection, as well as your constructive criticism. Please do send me an email with your comments to rabbi at jewishgardens.com. That's rabbi at jewishgardens.com, and your complimentary copy is right there in the corner of the room. You know, it's one thing to trust in God, but can you trust Him with your life? It's a whole new level. This idea will challenge the very depths of your being. It will help you discover a basement within your soul that you never even knew existed. Reinventing your relationship with God in the most deep, personal, and profound manner possible. May we enjoy the journey and may we all experience revealed goodness, toiv hanira ve'anigla, a healthy and wholesome relationship with God never needing to be tested but one that is full of light and full of love. Amen.
Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.